Welcome to episode 294 of Destination Linux, a video podcast show from the Tux Digital Network. If you're new to the show, Destination Linux is a discussion podcast perfect for all experience levels. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Michael. I'm Jill. And I'm Ryan. And on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we're going to be discussing how you can make money in the open source world. Then we'll be discussing issues with the GNOME's data collection ambitions. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All this and so much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. This week's feedback comes from Rodolfo. If you want to send in your own feedback, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash contact to get in touch or join the Tux Digital community forum by going to tuxdigital.com and clicking on the forum link at the top of the page. Rodolfo goes on to say, I've been listening to your podcast for almost a year and let me tell you how happy I am that a community of Linux enthusiasts like this exists. See, he didn't just mention Jill like someone in the chat earlier did on our live stream. <laughs> He mentioned all of us. Did yeah. you see that? That was so nice. I appreciate <laughs> so nice. That's so yeah. I have been using Linux since 2008, mostly on the server side, Red Hat, CentOS, and Fedora, and almost four years ago began using Ubuntu, mostly because the Odoo framework works well on this distribution. The cold side is that I learned new distributions other than Red Hat derivatives. For the desktop, curiously, I'd been using Windows in my personal laptop, but then one day, I heard about Pop! OS and decided to switch. As of now, the contact form I'm writing on is on my Dell Inspiron running Pop! OS 22.04. I'm not looking back. I have a question for the panel. What is the equivalent of Adobe Fireworks in the open source world as I need to convert images for web development, but without losing its quality? I've tried GIMP, but image size still are a little heavier than expected regards from Ecuador and keep those penguins marching. So Michael, fireworks plus image conversions. What is your suggestion here? Well, first of all, to talk about the fireworks thing, uh, it's interesting that they're asking about fireworks because fireworks was discontinued many years ago. So uh, if they're using it just for this, I do have some solutions, but they're using for other tasks, then maybe Jill will have some uh, suggestions for different applications. But in terms of converting for the web, this is something I do all the time. Uh, there are multiple ways to do it. First of all, one aw awesome way is image magic because image magic is a command line tool that you can automate. So you can just put a bunch of files inside of a folder, then tell image magic to take every file in that folder and just create the conversions, which is fantastic. So that's one I would check out in terms of being able to automate it. It's not a simple process because you do have to learn the syntax for the command line, but it's worth it because you can do hundreds of files in basically three seconds of effort. Uh, well, once you've already have the script done, then it's three seconds of effort. Now, the other option is PhotoP or PhotoPEA.com. This is a web app, which is kind of an alternative to Photoshop, and it has the ability to do con uh, file conversions and stuff like that, but you have to do those one at a time. So it, depending on how many you need to do or how comfortable you are with the command line, it might be worth checking out PhotoP instead of ImageMagic or vice versa. Now, you could also use pretty much any application to do these conversions that are able to open and export images, but... What I wanted to mention is that there is a specific type of format that is very commonly uh, kind of slept on in a, in a way because it is a very high quality file and it's made specifically for images on the web and that's WebP. 
So if you export as JPEG or as PNG, you're going to have a lot more file size being used than you would if you're doing WebP. And you can do the conversions at like 70% quality with WebP and still not even notice any degradation of the quality itself. So like you just say, I want it 70%. And technically speaking, it should be worse, but it doesn't look anything any worse at all. So that's what I would suggest. Do 70% conversions for WebP. Any application that can support that output is what you should use. Uh, but Image Magic is fantastic for automation. Yeah, and there's actually lots of nice options to Adobe Fireworks, although that, that program actually consists of several different programs in one. But one of the ones you can use that I really like is Vector Editor called Vector. It's actually V-E-C-T-R. And also Figma. Figma is used a lot in the professional world. And of course, there's the classic Inkscape. And um, that's a great option to Adobe Illustrator and also uh, Fireworks. And another that's in the works is uh, the Akira program um, for UX and uh, UX design for the web. And it's, it's really coming along. And there is actually a flat pack for it. So Akira is the one where me and Michael are really hoping gets a lot of development and takes off. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> Akira is still in testing, technically. It's yeah. Yeah, it's in a very beta. early development. Yeah. Yeah. It's still, it's very impressive for how, you know, how early development it is. But it's something that they say don't use it for production. But it is, it is really cool that these projects are being made because this is kind of an alternative to Fireworks. There's, it's more of a, an alternative to InDesign from Adobe, but mm -hmm. Fireworks sort of yeah. was replaced by InDesign and an Illustrator as like a combo thing. Uh, so if you're using it for design or graphics or vector graphics specifically, the options that Jill mentioned are fantastic options. If you're doing it just for the conversion, then I would suggest uh, checking out the ones I mentioned. Well, this was an awesome email. Thank you, Rodolfo, for sending that in. And if you want to send your questions or feedback in, make sure you go to textdigital.com slash contact. Also, I just want to say Rodolfo is an awesome name. That is yeah, to say. that's it a It really great is. Name. Yeah. And Rodolfo, also, thank you for your kind words about the show and our community. We, we really appreciate it and love having you in it. You make it special. Speaking of special, I want to let you know about our sponsor for this episode, and that is DigitalOcean. Because this is brought, this episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, so you can get started right now by going to do.co slash tux2022. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up a reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. Thanks to DigitalOcean, you can get set up and running on their awesome cloud platform quickly and easily. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean offers predictable pricing, robust product documentation, and services that developers love. For example, I love the DigitalOcean Marketplace. You can find all sorts of software that you can easily set up as droplets with just a few clicks. It is awesome. Plus, at DigitalOcean, you can get support at every stage of growth, whether you have a team of one person or a team of a thousand people. With DigitalOcean, you can get growing with their simple, powerful cloud computing platform. And as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's even better than that because you can get started with a $100 60-day free credit when you go to do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, go get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. 
So today we're going to do some myth busting. Specifically, we're going to do some myth busting about making money in open source. Michael, you can make money in open source. In fact, I want you to say, show me the money. Show me the money. No, I can't hear you. I want you to say, show me the money. Show me the money. Louder, man. Show me the money. There's money in open source. Do it. Show me the money. There you go. (laughs) So, Michael, you've been known to go on a rant or two about this term free and open source. Oh, yes, yes, yes. People thinking or assuming the free means as in monetary and not free as in freedom. Well, it's rant time. Just go on your little rant. Let's get it out of the air. Let's get it done. And then let's move into how people can make money, how we can show them the money in open source. Exactly. Yes. Well, in regards to my rant, uh, this is the thing about the free and open source. Now, I don't really like the term open source necessarily because it can also be kind of manipulated, but it is better than the term free software because free software implies to 99% of people that you're only talking about the monetary exchange of for that particular software. So like the gratis versus freedom aspect. And that's why I always suggest to use Libra software instead because it's much more clear. However, the problem is is that the English phrase of free software is so dominant in regards to paying for something or not paying for something. It's just a, a losing battle. Like there is no way to beat that because you're trying to convince everyone who speaks English what you mean by that phrase. So if you have to explain what you mean by a certain term, then you need to ch- like change that term because it's not working. And for the past like 30 something years, it hasn't worked. So just keep you that in mind. With Libro Nacho, Nacho software, right? L- Libra, <laughs> Libra software. Oh. Nacho yes. Libre software is also <laughs> acceptable. <laughs> I also yes. will accept that as, as long as they, they keep Libre that Libra part software. in there. <laughs> yes. Well, the, the truth is, one of the amazing things is a lot of software in open source is free, and that is free as in money. And that obviously helps close the digital divide, but it's not free for the people working and developing it. This costs them money and time. So even though the consumer often can get this for free, and if you need that, you're in the situation where that's your only option, that's amazing. I love that part that that's available to close the digital divide and so many people provide it that way, but we can't necessarily expect somebody to keep doing, because it's not free for them, that. and. It reminds me of a story because people don't respect free a lot of times either, where my brother was trying to sell a game. So we went to a big con fest and we started handing out demos of this game. And the first day when we we're handing out the demos and copies of the game, it was free. We were just giving it to anybody who was interested and came by the booth. When we were done with the conference that day, we were walking by some trash cans and noticed a lot of copies of games sitting in the trash can. Now, they couldn't have played it because it was on a CD and there was nobody with no CD or computers or anything there. It was just they were handed something for free and there was no respect for it and they threw it in the trash. So the next day we came back, we charged a dollar for each copy. And the whole idea was just to get people to play the demo of the game. And at that point, guess what? There were no more copies sitting in trash cans when it cost a dollar. And so just any type of small amount of money instantly gave people a little bit more respect for what they had. And when I think about the fact that 
a lot of us do have the ability to kind of give back and donate into projects and things, but don't. In some ways, it's kind of that maybe not having respect for all of the effort and work that goes into these things. But it also makes me think about that charging that dollar or something small for it, that there's a lot of ways you can actually earn money with open source software. And that's some of the stuff we're going to get into today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's a good point to like what you're talking about, how there's a value added to something when you just charge a little bit. It's the, you know, the common phrase of you get what you pay for. And if it's free, then it's probably not worth it. Like that sort of like mentality is still dominant in a lot of people in society. So I think that's a great example that you were gave about that, that game that you were talking about. Like there's also another misconception out there, sometimes driven by those in the community that either you can't make money with open source or you shouldn't make money with open source. And both of those are completely false without funding. These projects arguably wouldn't even exist. I mean, like sometimes the funding that exists for a project, you you might not expect where it comes from because every project really has funding. It might not be funding directly. It might be funding by, for example, the developer. Is, it's just on their back because they're using their day job to fund their necessities and their livelihood so they can spend time on the project in their free time. But what if this changes for the developer? If the money stops or something happens, that means they, you know, they lose their job or they have to change positions and it takes more time away from the project. It may, could be that the project ends from this. And that's why it's important that these projects are funded directly rather than doing the, you know, hoping that they're doing it for, um, like in their goodwill. So I think this is another misconception that's that people need to, you know, reconsider and look at the idea that open source is fantastic philosophy, but it still needs funding. Yeah, in fact, we've seen projects end for this very reason. The developer gets another job. That job doesn't allow them any flexibility, and the job has nothing to do with the project they're working on. Neither job did, but they were doing this in their spare time, and they get another job, or maybe they have kids all of a sudden, or family obligations, or things change. And now all of a sudden, that project, because there was no external funding outside of what's on that developer's back, their time, money, and the resources they were gaining from their other job is gone, and that project goes away and we kind of lose out in there. So I think we want there to be options for people to acquire software for free. I don't, we're not saying that needs to change, but I think we should also be looking at options, especially if you're a developer where you can fund these projects because we want your project to be along for the whole ride of the Linux and open source community. And that's what we're going to talk about is ability to give a future to current developers and we're going to go through some ideas on ways you can monetize this hard work. There's absolutely nothing wrong with making a living off of your talent and expertise. And Michael, you're talking about myth busting earlier about people getting mad when developers try to find a way to monetize certain portions of a project. Right. Sometimes it's because the way they monetize is not good, but that's rare. Most of the time, it's just they try to find a way to fund it. And then the community comes and eats them alive over that. Like, how dare you? And yeah. that we've got to stop. We've got to stop mm -hmm. that type of stuff. We need to be able to fund this. The idea that open source should always be free no matter what, it's kind of a misnomer because it's not free to make that stuff. And it's, we need to look at it in a different perspective. It's awesome that they offer it for free in some cases, but we want to make it possible to give these ideas to help these projects. And you know, maybe they don't, they don't know some of these different ways to make money in open source. And hopefully this, this episode will help them. So first of all, let's talk about uh, sponsorships. 
because mm-hmm. sponsorships are a really, you know, very common for, thing that people are doing for a lot of different projects. And a lot of, we even have this like for Patreon and stuff like that. And it's kind of like donations, but it's different in the way that you're going to do a more um, um, monthly express, uh, a monthly payment and rather than just doing a one-off donation. And the reason why this is important is because sponsorships are, they're, they're so much more reliable to the developer so they can actually make decisions based on what kind of money is coming in for that particular month. Like a lot of companies that will sponsor projects for that purpose of helping them continue. Like we have um, awesome stuff like DigitalOcean, like Shells and IBM mm-hmm. and Google are all sponsoring. Even, even Facebook sponsors stuff. You know? yeah. But great. <laughs> no, it's really great, honestly, that these companies, because a lot of the things that they utilize are open source. A lot of the projects they build have major open source components to them when you're looking at things like Google and Facebook and stuff like that. Uh, They're also big contributors in a lot of open source projects, but they're also available to sponsor open source projects. So as a developer, Mm -hmm. go out there and look at these big companies that we see out there sponsoring these projects. DigitalOcean is an amazing patron of the community when it comes to sponsoring projects and things like that. It's one of the reasons why we love having them as a sponsor for our show as an example, but they're available in Linux Chicks of LA, for instance. Yeah. My organization, the Linux Chicks of LA that I'm coordinator for, we get lots of awesome sponsorships. Uh, one of the big ones is actually the Linux Foundation. They they sponsor us to go to their events for free, to the Open Source Summit and all their events. And that's, that's awesome. a yearly sponsorship. And we also have DigitalOcean, like we do here on the Text Digital Network, and they are really good with sponsorships. And uh, at Linux Chicks, we also have Verizon. Verizon uh, is one of our big ones. They they provide uh, space for our meetups, which is really great. And we also have O'Reilly, O'Reilly, who makes all the awesome. Uh, uh, Linux educational books—they're amazing. They've been—they've been—they were our, actually our first sponsor <laughs> way nice. back when. So I mean, the key is you can go out there and get these sponsorships from these companies. So if you have a yeah. project that you know has that kind of notoriety or you think would be of interest to one of these companies, and it doesn't have to be directly related to something they're doing, it's an option as a developer to at least reach out to them and see if they're willing to sponsor it. But there are other options as well, like Open Core. Michael, what is mm-hmm. Open Core? Why would this be an option for developers? So Open Core is really interesting because it is it's it is technically open source, but there's an extra component on top of that. So it's basically having a core piece of software that is open source and then some add-ons or some premium additions that will able to uh, charge for those things. And you don't have to use those different add-ons, but it makes it enhances the product in some way. And that is a very common thing. Like for example, Redis is one of the best examples of a, a project that turned into open core and started using that model. Also GitLab does a similar kind of thing where you have the core fundamental pieces that are open source and free to use, but then also you can charge for specifics and you know, making it improved. And I think this is a really solid option for those who are looking for a way to monetize an open source project because it allows you to, you know, fund the enhancements of a project as well as even fund the overall project. And, you know, there's some people who don't like open core because of the add-ons typically are 
you know, locked down or closed. And it is possible to do open core while also making it, you know, a open source add-on system where you have the, the source code for those add-ons being open, but not provide binaries or ways to install it. You would then provide, like, if you wanted to purchase those add-ons, then they get a binary to enhance the product. And I think that's another good way to do it. Is this similar to like Zorin OS where you get a free version or you pay and get a version that's pre-packaged with software? Usually it's themes and things. Technically, someone could go in there and get the base Zorin OS, right? And then install all the themes and get all that stuff and do it themselves. Or you kind of just, it's a great way to kind of entice people to donate and get the one where all that works kind of done for you. Would you consider that open core? I think that there's it's an element of open core, yeah. Like I wouldn't say that it's exactly because the way they do the add-ons are kind of like you don't have to have those things in order to you know enhance the product or whatever. It's more of like these are you know nice things to have, like a custom workflow that is more similar to like Mac OS or something like that in their Pro Tools. As close as you could describe it, probably open core. Like I, yeah. I'm not really sure if they actually the model they use is defined anywhere else for developers depending on which one of these options we're going through that you may decide to pick. I also think it's really important to go and study and understand the licenses, the open source license you would use in conjunction with this. Cause I think that could have a big impact on some of these pieces, but a- another option is premium services. So a project could offer installation, customization or enhancement services on top of their existing software for a small fee Now, this I could see being very useful for corporations and things, especially where maybe they want some custom change made or um, some type of special enhancement that they're utilizing that they could pay for some premium project builds out there. So that's an option as well. Yeah, I think that's a a good win for people to have um, to as as an offer for customizing their product and services, because if you have that you can say the it's the software itself is free, but if you want me to customize stuff and make special features for you, then that is a service we, that we charge for. And I think that most companies would totally understand that. Like I know that feature request from the average user wouldn't really be like you wouldn't be able to justify paying for services like this. But yeah. in the sense of uh, if you're making something that a company might want to use, this would be a great option. And also, you mentioned licensing as something to be looking out. I think there's another way of monetization that's related to licensing, and that is doing dual licenses. So you can license your product as both open source and as a premium licensing option. For example, there are some projects that offer self-hosted open source versions that has branding of the project. So if you use some of their stuff and send it to a client, it will say made by blah, blah, blah. And one of the premium licensing options that they were they have is to be able to remove that branding for what something's called that white labeling. And I think that's a good option as well because you could have your open source product based on a GPL license where if someone wanted to use it in the open source fashion, they would have to uh, also release their source code if they make any changes. And then you could have another option that people that companies could pay to have to, uh, to have the option of not having to release their source code if they didn't want to. And while some people might look at that as a negative approach, because you can allow them to have access to non-open source. I think it's something that is a viable solution because the code itself is still open source and you can have a discussion with the customer to see if there's any benefit of bringing that into the open source platform. Some companies don't like GPL. They prefer MIT or Apache or something like that because 
if they see a software that has GPL, it might make them hesitate because they want to use open source, but they don't want to have be forced to also release their code as open source. And I think having a dual license option would be one way to kind of take care of that. Yeah. Another option is uh, paid hosting. Um, you know, we see many instances where a project allows you to use and host software yourself, but also allows options to host the service for you. It's basically software as a service. And even experts sometimes would rather not mess with hosting their own instance and maintaining it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially the maintaining it part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of companies that do this really well is Rocket Chat and Mattermost. There are companies who do this really poorly as well, um, which we've talked about in the past few weeks. Um, but you're supposed <laughs> to really um, <laughs> offer a, a scenario in which subtle, like, I could do subtle. lots of server setups. A, a lot of the servers um, we were even playing recently with session servers and things like that. But I always love the options where somebody else does all of the spinning up and maintenance and updates because we have so many other services that I also have to support that we use for the network that I don't have that option for. So anytime I can pay a small fee to have somebody else do that work, I love that as an option for developers to make money with software that meets that kind of criteria. And then people who don't have that ability to pay for that, they can still run the software exactly the same. You just have to host it on your own equipment and stuff, which is a very fair trade-off yeah. as well. And paid support. This is kind of an oldie but trustworthy one in the Linux community, I feel like. This is one we hear a lot of people talk about as a good way for developers to make money in open source is paid support. So if you create a cool project and people want some new features or help in figuring out how to get it to work in their specific environment, you can offer paid support options. I think, you know, good examples of this, Red Hat Canonical, those are two pretty big giant examples of companies that offer paid support options for oh, their yeah. products and can make a pretty good living off of it. I hear I hear red hat and uh, canonical do pretty good. Yeah, yeah, they're, mm -hmm. they're fine. Yeah. They're, probably, they're fine. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's working out so far, yeah, <laughs> you could so say far. That. but I, I think that paid support is an, is a great option. And is, you know, like you said, it's been around for a long time and it's a very uh, well established option. And I do think that, that is great. Now there might not, depending on how early your project is or what your project is made for, it might not be an option, but I think that these other options that we've listed so far would be great. And the next one is an option. I know that everyone loves. It is the best option by far. No one is going to be bothered by this one. And that is ads. Oh, yeah. I thought ads. you were going to say we get thing. a hold of your credit card and use it for donations. <laughs> um, that, no. Ads. Okay, a ads. Interesting. Huh. So, okay. Yeah. Most people don't like ads. But they can be good source of revenue and a small price to pay for people who want to support their favorite project without having to do anything as far as like submitting money themselves, you know? That you can run ads on a website to help cover the cost of like project servers and the developers' times. Uh, there's also some cases where people now this is debatable whether it's okay to have ads directly in the software. No, I, unless it's net zero for nostalgia. That's the only and only for nostalgia purposes. But <laughs> that's the only acceptable ad software. You remember net zero where like yes. you get yeah. like, yes. Was it and free, but you had ads, or it was, was it free, cost like it, a couple dollars? They had dollars multiple tiers. There was yeah. like the free version had a ton of ads, and then the other one, like you have the smaller, you could like get less ads, but I think you always had to have some sort of ads. This one's a no. 
Ads and software, no. I agree for the most part. I think there is a possibility of it being done properly. It's just yeah. like people saying outright there's never an option and never a possibility that it could be be done right. Like I, I don't know. It, I think there's possibility. Well, didn't Canonical try to do this once with Amazon and it didn't work out so well as I heard? <laughs> okay, in some cases it's actually terrible, yes. Uh, so yes. <laughs> in that case, yes, when you have when you're trying to search for applications on your on your desktop and for some reason ads pop up for Amazon, not not great. That's not great. Yeah. But it can be done properly without being super annoying. I'm just yeah. saying it's it's a just don't rule it out entirely. Think outside the bun. You know, that yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> Google has made their empire because of ads. And yeah, like with, with YouTube, if you if you pay to use YouTube, then you don't have ads. <laughs> so they have an option. Uh, either way, yeah. they make money. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, projects like Manjaro have ads on their site or promotions, whatever you want to call it. If it makes you feel better, call it promotions. But I think it's kind of one of the same. Uh, you can see they have Shell, SoftMaker Office, Surfshark, which is a, a VPN out there. Um, mm -hmm. Not so sure about Surfshark. You know what you need to do instead of necessarily going to Surfshark, just because this is I'm a privacy person. You need to check out my video on VPNs because I have a whole video that tells yeah. you what to look for specifically with any VPN you're going to go through. So make sure you check that out. But Manjaro has a bunch of partnerships, and I think there's nothing wrong with that, putting some of those on there. Uh, on the site, although partnerships with VPNs gets really, really fuzzy real quick. Like they are the number one company that comes after us to sponsor stuff like three or four times a week. We have a new VPN that I've never heard of that wants to sponsor us. And we always say no because it's so risky to have your community go off and choose a VPN that's actually worse than your ISP. Like they could be yes. actually logging mm -hmm. and collecting more data and doing worse yeah. things than if you had no VPN at all. So you have to be very careful with the VPN thing. I'm sure Manjaro's done their homework, but just in case yeah. they haven't, before you go Surfshark, check out my VPN video, teach you how to do that. And but in any we case- We got a message asking, is this an ad for Ryan's channel? I, I know, <laughs> Nico yes. Jet, he's so clever. In this, in this particular <laughs> case, it's a good ad too. It's customized to you. Yeah, um, exactly, you should yeah. check it out. This is super targeted. <laughs> it's super targeted, yeah. Yeah. But it is a fantastic video, and I have sent it to a lot of people who ask me about VPNs. They're like, "What's the best suggestion?" And like, uh, I, "Just watch this video. This is it, I, there, he covers way more than I ever would have if I gave you the answer." So I, that's just—it's a good. Also, it's a good video just to share with other people who have the same similar questions about VPNs. So it's definitely a good video, Ryan. I know I give you a little bit of a hard time, but it is a good video. Thank you. I appreciate that. VPNs are just one of those things that could be very nefarious, but. The key is Manjaro has some promotions or ads and things on their site. And I don't think that bothers anybody. Like it doesn't, when I'm scrolling to download the latest Manjaro, I don't see that and go, oh my gosh, how dare you put that there? Um, yeah. Because it's not being fed through Google ad reads or anything. It's just their sites that they put on there and it helps probably fund the tremendous costs of setting up all the servers and everything else they do there. I have no problem with companies that do that at all yeah um, I but i don't like ads in the software i think that's a very slippery slope for people that's fair and you know it, it starts to kind of be a little bit creepy i've not seen anybody do it well except for net zero again net zero amazing <laughs> it wasn't but it's just nostalgia. <laughs> amazing yeah for it, sure. was, it was terrible <laughs> uh there's one last way of course and that's donations uh they are great 
Donations are amazing. I think it's the ultimate display of love when people come in and donate freely um, without any other reason other than thanks for the software, here's a donation. But it's also entirely unreliable. And that's the biggest problem and why things like Patreon and other stuff exist to begin with. Because if you're somebody who's a developer and maybe you have a good couple months of donations coming in, but you don't know that next month if those same donations are going to come in to cover your expenses, then you're taking a huge risk if you're ever to say quit your day job or something to work on this type of thing full time. So I think that's why services like Patreon exist. Again, donations, probably the ultimate form of love, but not reliable love. Unreliable love. Like a middle school sweetheart. Unreliable love. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay sure and i think we should just point out that all of these are different options that you can have with your open source project but you can also do all of them like you could basically just do all of them if you want to yeah dang michael but you <laughs> could do them all I, I, and my you could my my philosophy is if you're going to do monetization have as many revenue streams as possible because if one of them goes down at some point, you have other ones to rely on. So in this case, that's why I would suggest just do them all. In terms like some of these things that we mentioned you shouldn't do, I'm I'm gonna agree with Ryan about ads and software, not great. But... Uh, the other things that we talked about, you could totally do those as <laughs> yeah. a collection of everything. And I do think ads are a, a good solution. I think there is a point where it becomes excessive. And there are many websites that we could mention right now that do that, where they have 10 ads or more just taking up more room than the content itself. You like, get a paragraph and then you have to <laughs> scroll through 10 yeah. ads yes. to get the second paragraph, those type yeah. of... Or the autoplay videos. There is a way of doing too much, but I do think that it's okay for websites to have ads, and I think that it's a totally solid option, especially if they have a premium option where people can pay to get rid of those ads so that they don't have to, you know, ever deal with those. And I think that that's a great option as well. So put them all together, and hopefully then uh, this will be beneficial to you, and people can share this video, this episode with people who are in development projects, and, you know, maybe they can help them out. Yeah. Because we all want more featureful and polished open source software. I also think the developers out there do a lot of this stuff out of passion and love because they want people who can't afford otherwise to go get the Adobe suite or subscribe for $500 or $1,000 or whatever the heck it costs now for all this software and things to be able to utilize this stuff when they don't have the resources and freely. But a lot of these options, what I like about them is that doesn't stop that from happening. You still have the digital divide bridge closing because all of these options still allow for somebody to self-host or utilize the software. But these options for people who are capable of it or people who are starting to make money through open source or people who've started businesses using the software in open source gives them motivation to start paying and you know providing some funds so that these developers can work on this stuff full time. So it accomplishes both. Because we don't want to squeeze people out who can't afford this stuff and just become another Windows. But at the same time, we need to find ways to, you know, make sure we have more polished and featureful open source projects. And I think to do that, we need to find new ways and give ways to developers to fund their projects. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this this episode 
is both for the developer and for the user because we want to help uh, get these developers be able to make their projects and have monetary um, uh, you know benefit to it but also it's kind of to like the user of you know if you take something for granted you might not be able to do you know to use it forever so in these cases like if you use something that you benefit greatly from then consider donating i know a lot of people in the audience absolutely do donate to various different projects and that is awesome uh, it's just to like to say if you have the means to donate if you don't that that's understandable but if you do you'll feel better about yourself doing it because you know that they're going to they're going to appreciate your contribution to the project and keep that project going and that's really what we're talking about we want to make all these projects get better and keep going. So, you know, another amazing company out there that does so much for the open source community and sponsors open source projects, Bitwarden. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash tux. A password manager software allows you to have peace of mind knowing your online accounts are secure. Bitwarden provides you the tools to store all your passwords in secured vaults, auto-generate those passwords, and auto-generate your usernames as well. Because guess what? If you use the same username across every website, then now a hacker, a nefarious person, has 50% of your login credentials. Now all they need to do is guess your password. What I love about Bitwarden is that you can access all your data from any type of device, literally web browsers, mobile apps, desktop applications, even the command line. You don't ever have to leave the command line. You can still use Bitwarden. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it leaves your device so you know you're the only person with access to your data. Go to bitwarden.com tux and get started for free. This is another service where if you can't afford it, you can go there, get the same amazing encrypted password protection absolutely free. Just go to bitwarden.com tux and that's it. You can have your account. But if you have the means, they have a premium account which is absolutely amazing at a gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login key with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator, Priority Customer Support, and all of that for $10 per year. Just $10 per year for their premium there. So go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. Let's talk about a topic everyone loves. And of course, I'm referring to data collection. Yes, right, everybody. Finally, Look. my <laughs> favorite. Exactly. <laughs> so, metadata is is has been given a bad name in regards to data collection, like telemetry, for example. I understand people don't like telemetry, but data collection doesn't necessarily mean it's a terrible thing automatically. I mean, there's absolutely companies that have abused this option and you know created some. Give distrust. me one example. <laughs> I think companies use all of our data very, very efficiently and with uh -huh. the utmost responsibility. There is no way you're going to convince me, Michael, that all of these data breaches where my information's constantly being put out there on the deep web is really affecting me. This is fantastic. In fact, I get to know more people and meet new hackers that keep breaking into my stuff through this process. How do you think I've made all you're, my internet friends? You're such an optimist. I, yeah. I expect it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there there are a few companies, and by that I mean a lot, that have taken this position and taken data without people wanting... Like, for example, if people uh, have heard of Microsoft, mm -hmm. where they, pay, they take your data for you using the thing you paid for, they also take data about you. So that's, that's nice. wonderful. Sweet. Yeah. They do it to improve the product, Michael. Yes. And I mean, and look how well it's worked. Have you tried Windows 11? It's clear 
all of this metadata is needed yes. because how would we have exactly. such innovation as this taskbar going from spread out across my screen like some three-year-old wrote it to, because they stole all our data, shrinking it to the middle of the screen. Freaking right. genius. Everybody Think wants about that. It. It, was, it, yes. it was such a dramatic change. It was so innovative. <laughs> they realized <laughs> that know? because they stole all of our data that the mouse, most people's mice uh, pointer, is right there in the middle all the time. So that's what they did to figure it out, you know? Yep. How would you do that without stealing people's data? So sweet, Microsoft. Think about so it. sweet. Thank you. Uh. <laughs> One of the main reasons people switch to Linux, by the way, is Windows metadata. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that is a factor that, that, have, that people have in regards to, you know, being a little bit annoyed by the sweet decisions that Microsoft makes. However, not all metadata is bad. We talked about on a previous episode about the information from the Stack Overflow developers and how fascinating it was. And this information was super interesting that we wanted to put it on the show. And this kind of data can be beneficial in a lot of ways. It can, yep. And Gnome has created a new tool called Gnome Info Collect. This is a way to anonymously and privately help gain information about their user base. I think this is a very cool project that they have put out there. I don't think it's going to get a huge amount of people jumping on board because of the process to use it. You have to go install the software and all those things. But I like the precautions GNOME took here in the data that they're gathering. For instance, once you install the tool, so it's not automatically forcing you an install on people or anything like that. Once you go and voluntarily install the tool, then it will collect the data, but it shows you all of the data. And then it gives you another prompt and says, do you want to upload it? So you have the ability to see all of this data. So it's, it's very respectfully done. So respectfully done. I'm not sure how many people will do it. Hopefully this episode helps a lot of people go out there and do it um, because I went out there and did it. Like I, I had no problem with the data they were looking to gather here. I tend to get frustrated when I see things that are getting way too personal with IP addresses and stuff like that. Um, but looking over the data they were asking for, in fact, it was data I really wanted GNOME to see, like yeah. the fact of all the plugins that I have to use to make GNOME operate Absolutely. like a normal desktop <laughs> would be something I really, really want them to see. So the only thing yeah. I would ask is that they have a highlight feature that I could highlight, put a square around it, this is maybe important. some fireworks, like look at all this stuff I have to install to use your desktop environment. But other than that, uh, yes, I really like this. I think it was done very respectfully. Yeah, and it collects uh, hardware information, including the manufacturer model, system settings, including workspace configuration and which sharing features are enabled, application information, such, such as which apps are installed and which ones are favorited, as well as, of course, the GNOME shell extensions. Yeah. I, w I wanted GNOME to see that I use dash to dock and dash to panel. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and this is this is where data like this could be invaluable. Number one is what is one of the big problems that we have in a Linux community is when you ask people like, well, how popular is Linux becoming? And then you see these types of sites that try to track it based on clicks and other things on a website visit. And so they rank distros that, frankly, it doesn't make any sense that that would be the most popular distro 
in anybody's imagination like what's that site uh, distro watch or whatever distro watch is one they, of the examples you know, like yeah. th those yeah. they should get they they renamed their ranking system to page hit ranking so it's more clear however they should just stop calling it page hit ranking 2 they should just call it trending because it's not ranking anything it's just what is more popular at this particular time based on people who go to DistroWatch. That is what that list the, is. The point is that we're you know. so desperate for data that that's often used and quoted. The other one is All Steam's you know, random survey that they do, which, yep. again, is extraordinarily random. And people complain all the time in the Linux community that they every time they're in their Windows session, they get the survey. Anytime they're in Linux, they don't get the survey. So that doesn't really tell us much. So we don't even know what's out there. What is, why does this matter? Well, for instance, do we know whether we want to focus on NVIDIA GPUs? Maybe, maybe 90% of the Linux users out there use NVIDIA GPUs, but nobody knows because we can't gather any data at all. Or maybe the trend has shifted and now 70% of the people are using AMD and a smaller percentage are using NVIDIA and the rest are using Intel. Or it's more likely that Intel is probably the biggest and then NVIDIA. But anyways, my point is we don't know and the developers don't know. So they don't know where to focus their attention because they don't know what people have. So how do you do it effectively? Well, you need the, we need the privacy. We don't want to turn this into Microsoft Windows, right? So we want that privacy. Um, but as users, I think we need to be a little more open to utilizing tools like this where they've clearly done everything they can to respect people's privacy and stuff. Uh, again, because it's a separate tool, you have to install and all that. I don't know they're going to get a lot of hits here, but maybe there's a way to incorporate this into some distros respectfully uh, so that this type of data can be at a bigger than just GNOME too. Because I want to know about KDE. I want to know about GNOME. Mm -hmm. I want to know about XFCE. I want to know about all the Linux distros. KDE yeah. has a voluntary thing as well. Like you yeah. can submit information to them as well. And that you have to go in, you have to know that that's an option. You were talking about, you don't know how useful this information is. In my opinion, it's going to be very, very little value because of how, how skewed the numbers will be. Because you have to, one, know that this application exists. Mm -hmm. Two, install that application manually. Three, manually activate it so it looks for the information and then again manually send the information so the amounts of people who are going to do those things is not super high so i think that you're going to have enthusiasts who are more than happy to give that information rather than people who would if they were just presented the offer like hey do you want to submit this information to help us improve the software they would probably do it, but they wouldn't go and look for that kind of thing. Or people who aren't even aware that it is is a thing to go look for. Like, that's a very high level of skewing, in my opinion. And the way I would go with it, like, I do agree with you, what you said about how GNOME is doing it. It is doing it in a very respectful way. I like the fact of, like, the, tip, the type of data that they put in there is not identifiable. Now, there, there was an issue a couple years ago where I don't, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but Ubuntu uh, introduced to choose to send that data, but you couldn't pick and choose their certain type of data. And some of the data that was in that list was not comfortable with some people. For example, they had IP address associated, like not technically there, but they had the country information associated from the IP address. So there was still some usage of that IP, which in certain small cases could be used as like a fingerprinting issue. Whereas if you don't have that information at all, then you really can't do fingerprinting because you can't isolate them in any way. And it's a very 
unlikelihood of being able to use that data for that thing, but it creates a possibility versus what GNOME is doing where there is no option for that at all because there's no way to isolate any individual. The only thing that identifies an individual is the machine ID, which is totally fine because it's it's based on the hardware of the machine and then they create a salted hash that creates this gibberish ID and that's solely for the fact of stopping duplicates from happening. So if someone yeah. does the same thing over and over, it wouldn't just have the same data like slammed in together all in one. They would kind of isolate it to like, okay, this is a single user who's just submitted it three times or something. The thing that I really yeah. love about what GNOME did here is that showing you what they collected before you submit the data. Yeah. Yes. To me, this is a big deal because I've seen distros during install, like, do you want to help us out with sending anonymous information and stuff? And you check a box. But I have no idea what you're asking. A lot of times I'm in a time crunch when I'm installing two and like maybe there's a link that will open something else up, but I might not even have internet connection at the time I'm doing a distro install right at that moment. It would be really nice if it just gave you an example. Like, what is it you're collecting before I submit yes? So a lot of times if I don't know, I'm just going or I don't have the option or time to go check what they're asking me to grab, what information I'm trying to grab, I'll uncheck it. Whereas this, where like before... They, they grab the information, but before it goes, it gives me a preview. Hey, this is everything we collected. You good with it? Yes, but I like your option as well, Michael, where you said, hey, allow people to uncheck certain things. Like maybe you want to grab region and stuff, but maybe some people don't want to send that because they're in a smaller country. It would be easier to fingerprint. Maybe not as many users. They use Linux. Let them uncheck that. That's a really responsible and good option, I think. Yeah, I think there's a, a good example of that is KDE's approach. They have inside of their system settings, they have a slider option where mm -hmm. you can you, you can't uncheck specific things, but you can slide it down to not include certain stuff. Now, I wish it was more granular than that, but it just having that as an option is really cool. Now, my preferred style is I know I'm going to get some hate on this one. Opt in is fantastic. And I think that it makes sense. However, it also means that the vast majority of users will not be participating, mostly because they're not even aware that they have something to participate in. So I prefer an opt-out tweak. So instead of having all this information being sent uh, upon voluntary choice, I would like it for just a couple of things, and that's it, being sent automatically, but only when the user chooses to do it. So for example, when you install a distro, it would run something that would say, hey, would you like to send this inf anonymous information to help the projects? And then that would send a machine ID and then the distro information, like the distro name, that kind of thing, maybe the version of the distro. And that's it. That's all it sends. But you could also choose to send even more by opting into more information. But that's like the default it would send would be just those basic things. And the reason for that is like you were talking about how we don't know a lot about our platform in regards of how, what, how people are using various different things. One of the biggest and most problematic things is just how many people are using Linux. Yeah, how, we have mm -hmm. no idea. Like we've had conversations with people who are making company who are making software for Windows and trying to convince them to make a Linux version. I mean, personally, I've had I've had conversations with dozens, maybe even a hundred or so companies over the years trying to get them to use Linux, and they always go with like, "Well, there's not a lot of users," and then I would say, "Well, there's a lot of users," and they would, "How many?" I don't know. I don't. Yeah, know. hard to track. Well, it's impossible <laughs> to know. Yeah. So my reasoning for that opt out initial thing 
is just to say how many people use Linux because the machine ID or that hashing ID that GNOME does, that would be a way to say this is a, a unique install. And then we'd have the information about the distro so we can know how many people are using specific distros. And then that's it. And then we'd be able to solve gigantic problems with just that information because we could convince the companies like, hey, there are millions of users that you could get your software to. But you're not and even based on the fact it right that now. every Linux user probably has six VMs. We have quadrillions of users. <laughs> yeah. Jill, what were you going to say? Yeah. So um, actually, this was actually really easy to install on a Ubuntu. I just installed it as a snap. Yep. And it actually works in terminal. It works in the command line. It's really simple to use. And uh, Michael, like you were saying, I, I think if it, if it would, you know, there would be a pop up notification for it when you first load GNOME. Uh, that would would uh, enable a lot of users to access it and send their data if they want to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my my opt-out is solely for the counting of how many people are using Linux, period, not for the yeah, extra yeah. data. If they wanted to send the extra data, that would be an opt-in feature. But the reason for this is, like, Ryan, you mentioned about how people have VMs. However, I have a counterpoint for that, so thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> VMs are still going to be counted as individual machines because the software from these different companies are not per person, they're per seat. Yeah, so per each seat. machine is, you have to pay for each machine no matter how many you have. So oh. we can oh, still count quadrillion VMs. Quadrillion users, here we, we come. Can, <laughs> we yeah. can still count VMs. Maybe not servers, but VMs for sure. And they still track your IP address. <laughs> well, no, I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that if you do have an opt out option only where it's opt-in by default you need to make it very clear and yeah. then what i like to do is make it a game and when i'm rushing and just clicking next if i see that come by as i clicked next and that opt ability to uncheck that opt out goes by because i'm going too fast they win and they get my data if however i'm not rushing they don't. You turn it into a little game. Okay, I'm kidding. No, I agree with what yeah. you're saying. So I, I should clarify, when I say the opt-out part, I mean that by default, there would be that small amount of data being sent, but you still be have the option to choose to not send it. Of course, it. yeah. In addition to having the option to send more information. Like that go. sort of stuff, I do think is totally fine. And I also think it's fine if the, um, whatever the project is, sent a message saying, hey, this person opted out. So they at least know, they know how many people opted out. And I think that there is there's a value in that too. So as long as there is an option to opt out, I think that having the uh, defaults there would be totally fine, provided that they are that kind of a minimal set of data. You know what? Mm -hmm. I think that I we need to take a moment to show some respect for my ability to theme a show every week when I write them. So we started with how to make money in open source, correct? And yes. then... Mm -hmm. And then we instantly went into Gnome Info Collect after talking right. about ads right. and things, right? right. Perfect. Mm -hmm. But look mm -hmm. at the game, Michael. Let's talk yeah. about the game. Okay. <laughs> really? So looking at this choice, compared to the topic we just covered, mm -hmm. um, we mm -hmm. discussed the positives of data collection. Yeah. And Ryan's choice for the game is the Shadow Government Simulator. <laughs> Yeah, tell me, tell it's, me. it's not yes. genius. Look at that. I mean, uh, fair enough. It is properly themed. So. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There you go. 
Jill, tell us about <laughs> well, shadow government. Th- this this is essentially uh, collecting data for well conspiracy theories. <laughs> Every time. Yeah. (laughs) The shadow government simulator is uh, inspired actually by old turn-based strategy game classics like Plague Incorporated and modern games like The Shrouded Isle. This is, uh, you're going to play for free the shadow government simulator prologue, which is just a small part of the amazing adventure that will await you in the full version of the game when it comes out. So it's a turn-based strategy game where you lead a secret society towards world domination and investigate the influential and convert them to your faction. And it's actually a very uh, challenging game where you infiltrate nations, discover their networks of power, and then reshape them to fit your agenda. And, you know, there's no guns or blasting bad guys away here. You just need to keep your wits about you and keep those thinking caps on. (laughs) (laughs) This is a perfect game. I want to challenge you in world domination, Michael. Yes. (laughs) And it it just, it's, it has, what's really cool is it has a really nice tutorial to get you started. And the game menus are actually very nicely themed. And the music has a very stealthy tone for a great atmosphere for your conspiracy adventures. And Jill, does this mean (laughs) Illuminati? Yes, the Illuminati are part of this this, this game as well. <laughs> so Illuminati confirmed. You're a Boom. conspirator of the Illuminati. And it's it's really well done. It it has a map of the world and you you know you start off by picking your headquarters and then you 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 pick areas of of the map that you want to infiltrate with your theory, your conspiracy theories. Yeah. Michael has weak it's well thumbs. Done. It spreads through the nation. His people stop following him because who wants a leader <laughs> that has weak thumbs and then yeah. sits on a stool? And these are the type of conspiracies I'm going to spread so that I can completely take over and dominate Michael's nation. These are weird yes. conspiracies that he has uh, started on this show, in fact. So. It's two. It's two. It's two. It's true, too. It's true, too. Yes. What? So, I don't know. I, I said it's two <laughs> instead of it's true. It was weird. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. It's not true. My my thumbs are awesome. <laughs> I, I have I, I win all thumb wars. I don't know who you're talking about. Not true. Well, you've well, never challenged me. So we, we don't did. You can't, Remember you, I took a picture at my house and your thumb. Yeah, yeah. You took a picture of the thumbs, but you didn't actually challenge me to a thumb war. You would have lost. That's true. Yeah. See? We need to See? do a thumb war That's with true, action yeah. cameras. A thumb war yes. with action cameras. We had to have like the 360 angles of our thumb war. So people on YouTube can like Look at yeah. it all different angles of the thumb war. See if you're cheating. And we also have to build like a like a like a kind of a, a, a ring or whatever that wraps around our our hands in like an octagon style. Oh, can you do like of the... off the ropes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you could do it arm wrestling style. You know. <laughs> yeah, I like it. So we went from collecting data to shadow government, and in our software spotlight. Well, I guess it doesn't fit the rest of this. We got G Capri. Ah, this is for the kids. They're talking about kids. <laughs> uh, so G Capri, we get a lot of questions about educational software for our listeners with kids. So this week we're bringing you a new educational. Well, it's not new. What we're bringing might be new for you. Educational suite called G Capri. Suite is built for uh, kids ages two through ten, and it has a really well built 
interface. It's absolutely so well done. When I was playing with this this weekend, I was so impressed. As computer discovery, keyboard, mouse, different mouse gestures, things that you can teach, arithmetic, table memory, enumeration, mirror image, balance scales, those type of things, science. It has games in there like Connect Four, Tic Tac Toe, Sudoku, those type of things. No Fortnite, no V Bucks. None of that stuff. This is all educational reading, reading practice, and they even have braille systems in there. You can learn mazes, music instrument training. This is a absolute masterpiece of software, in my opinion, to train your kids before uh, they join the Illuminati. <laughs> this is <laughs> so true. that they can join the Illuminati. <laughs> One of my favorite activities they have is the analog electricity activity, which actually teaches how to draw circuits and run their simulations. We had uh, demonstrated that at one of our Linux Chick-fil-A meetups, uh, yeah, to new users of electronics and how to how to put Linux on those electronics. <laughs> yeah, this is a really great application. But Ryan, you missed a very important piece. Of, oh yeah, like why people should check it out. I, oh, this is made by the KDE team. Yeah, so it is. To, it's part of the KDE project. I just wanted people to know that that uh, G Compre is uh, another fantastic thing from the people at KDE. So you're you just want to no matter what you just want to mention yes this is great software and that's because KDE. No 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 not because KDE made it. It's just uh -huh. it happened. It just they happen to also make it. I'm just you know I'm just saying some of the people watching the show live were mentioning that during the GNOME discussion data collection discussion you had to bring up KDE as well. You're a little obsessed, and I think you're trying to make up for your weak thumbs. I am a fan of KDE, but I just want to point out one thing. What? It was relevant to the discussion with the GNOME thing. You will make they also any reason similar. And in, in this can. case, it's also relevant because they make the thing that you're spotlighting. So is it really my fault, or is it your fault for bringing up things that allow me to talk about KDE? Think about it. It could yeah. be your fault. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> You know what? Let's see if you do it in the tip of the week. Michael, can you make the tip of the week about KDE? Go. I don't think so. Well, speaking of KDE, this next tip we're going to talk about is actually a replacement to something else that is also just an initialism like KDE is. So we're going to talk about a alternative to Netstat. So if you're still using Netstat for network information, you might want to switch out to SS because the man page for Netstat says this program is mostly obsolete. So the replacement for Netstat is, like I said, SS. And that is the tip of the week. Check it out. SS command is a tool used to dump socket statistics and display information in similar fashion to Netstat, but it's much easier to get started and much easier to master. So the SS command utility uh, gives you d details and stats for things like uh, packet information, uh, TCP, UDP, DCCP, raw, and more. And we'll have information in the show notes related to more specific commands you can run based on the type of connection you want to check out. Yeah, but you've got netstat tac r, which the replacement for that is IP route, and netstat tac i, which IP dash s link, and then you have netstat dash g, which is now IP matter, M A D D R, like the Mad Hatter. That one's easy to remember. There, uh, matter. That was uh, that was like so much to say. It's in the show notes, people. You can just check out all this and stuff in the show notes. Yeah, but SS doesn't replace everything. Is all I was saying. Like it replaces okay. yes. all of the. It doesn't replace everything. Yeah, but at the same time, I I feel like the only reason you wanted to bring that up is so you could say IP matter. It's true. <laughs> you, I'm kind of busted on there. 
So that's it. The end of our show. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, we love your faces. We're here every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern live at tuxdigital.com slash live. And the best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. We also have our wonderful patrons with us right now in the virtual stadium. We have a 60,000 square foot virtual stadium that our patrons can join and hang out every week after the show in our patron-only post-show. Plus, we also have unedited versions of this show that you can get out if you are not able to watch live. That's okay. You can still become a patron by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute and getting access to all of the fantastic, unedited greatness that is this show when mm -hmm. uh, we make mistakes and I have to edit them out. So all that greatness, you can check it out by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute and becoming a patron. Also, you can help to support the show by going to tuxdigital.com slash store and checking out all the great swag we have. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, coasters, <laughs> so much great stuff. Not the stuff that Ryan picks up every... Actually, he picked up a mug, so we do have mugs. So yeah. good job, Ryan. You, you messed up and picked up something we actually have at tuxdigital.com slash store. <laughs> and make sure to check out all our awesome shows here on Tux Digital. We have the Pseudo Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, Linux Out Loud, Hardware Addicts, Gamesphere, and Linux Saloon. So everyone head to TextDigital.com and subscribe to all these awesome shows. And don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite app so others can discover the power of open source and keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a great week, and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Illuminati confirmed. <laughs> Love. <laughs> Jill does the heart symbol. Right? <laughs> 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 <laughs>